0: It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. So I'm going through a series called Becoming Brave, and uh, it's been a really powerful one uh, for me. Uh, it's, it's important, too, I think, for all of us as we navigate through the time in which we live and just needing a sturdiness to our souls in an hour where we feel like foundations are crumbling. And uh, so I think it's just critical uh, to, to review these different building blocks of what makes up a truly brave life, a courageous life, a strong life, that one that doesn't cower, one that doesn't cow in the very moments that it's most needed to move forward and proclaim the truth. So this one is called Getting Conscience Clean. The last few have been really interesting because I think they fall into a category of like, well, how does that play into bravery? And it's interesting because some of the components in the makeup of bravery are not what most people would expect. Things like the last episode we talked about mercy. The episode before that we talked about being strategic and being wise and how we approach things like what would that have to do with bravery and that's why you should listen to those messages if you happen to miss them but they do and they are a very important component of it and having a clean conscience is actually a, a key part of being bold with the truth one of the number one things the enemy tries to do is is taint or sully the conscience of the Christian. And the moment that they feel like it's sullied or they feel dirty, they feel like they haven't been representing the truth in their own life, then they don't speak it strongly. And so it's just a tactical maneuver. It's very, very effective. And so it's just one of the devil's favorite things to go about doing. But when you are confident and you feel that cleanliness, you know the power of the shed blood in your life, you know the mercy of God expressed to you, you know that His Mercies are new every morning. You know that your righteousness is not found in what you, not found in what you do, but in what He has done. It changes the game, and it causes a boldness and a bravery and a courage to begin to maneuver in and through you. Quote from Mark Twain: "The preacher who casts a vote for conscience' sake runs the risk of starving." It's interesting because in American history, the idea of a clear conscience is understood. It's actually a clear part of our history. But it's it's interesting because when you hear Mark Twain say something like that, and he's a part of our American history, right? Uh, you're thinking, well, I don't know. Uh, the preacher who casts a vote for conscience sake? You see, in the last few years, it's become more and more clear that to go with your conscience can actually cost you. And that's good for us. As North American Christians, we haven't always remembered that. And so we could keep our conscience and say, hey, this is our form of government, and you can't tell me no, and I don't feel comfortable with that. But now, if you try and move with your conscience, you literally could lose your job over it. And this has been proven in and through this uh, pandemic season, is that there are certain people that have really struggled in their conscience with certain things that are being asked of them. And like, I can't in good conscience do that. And it costs them their job. And I know many, many people that have walked through that. And so uh, I I actually understand this. Mark Twain, as as I read earlier, the preacher who casts a vote for conscience sake runs the risk of starving. So what is the conscience? So in the Greek, it's sunnidesis. And it means joint knowledge, sort of a fascinating description of what this is. It's the moral sense of right and wrong. It's the other set of eyes to view the matter. The other perspective of the soul that doesn't seem to side with self. It is a really fascinating thing that we have this thing called a conscience. In other words, you could, inside of yourself, you could say, I want to do this. You could crave doing something. And yet there's another part of you that argues and says, but you shouldn't do that. Isn't that funny? Who is that? That's your conscience. It's this other side. That's why it's called joint knowledge. It's like another character knows what's going on and is weighing in with their opinion. And when you listen to that voice, it goes well for you. When you disagree or shun that voice and try and harden yourself to that voice, it never goes well for you. The conscience. Another way of describing it is the driving mirrors. Okay. So one of the ways that I look at it is you're driving down the road and you're trying to make a decision. And imagine you really want to go into the left lane. You want to get into a different lane because you don't like driving behind this slow truck in front of you. So What you should do, as we all know, is that you have driving mirrors, you have a rearview mirror, you have side mirrors, and you should consult them. You should say, hey, mirror, what do you have to say about this? Because that mirror has a perspective that actually aids and abets your health and your uh, ability to drive without an accident. But imagine that you don't want to hear what the mirror says, or imagine the mirror says there's a truck in your blind spot. And you say, I don't care. I don't want to listen to you. That's like saying, I don't want to listen to my conscience. You are setting yourself up for a crash. And so as a result, to effectively live in this body as a believer, we need to recognize that this other opinion, this this counsel from without, even though it's in our life, this other voice actually really matters in how we navigate forward and make decisions. So here's another definition of the conscience, the soul's eye. In other words, there's something that is seeing the circumstances and it is weighing in and say, I see that. I see what you're doing, Eric. I see what you're about to do there. And I'm going to lend you a little conviction over that and say, that isn't good. You see, this other eye sees and has commentary. It's really funny because most of us are like, shut up, shut up, shut up. I don't want you to talk to me. And yet how you care for your conscience becomes very, very important in the success rating of your Christian existence. So the Bible talks about the conscience quite a bit. So I'll just give you a few facts about the conscience as is stated biblically. It can be weak. And that's 1 Corinthians 8, 7. In other words, you can have a conscience, but it can be a weakened conscience, which means it's not trained well. But 1 Corinthians eight ten is also going to indicate that it can be trained. In other words, you can actually build your conscience one way or the other. You could train it uh, in the wrong direction. To actually be okay with compromise, or you could train it to be highly sensitized, but sensitized correctly. Because some people have a conscience that is extra sensitive, but it's extra sensitive on wrong things. And so they cannot walk under a ladder, for instance, because they have a superstition that if you walk under that ladder, bad things will happen to you. So their conscience is actually saying, no, 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 don't do that. But when in actuality, it's not based on truth. So superstition is an illustration of a a poorly trained conscience. So a conscience can be trained. And this is sort of building on that. First Timothy 4 2, it can be trained incorrectly, or another term for it is seared. So if you've ever heard of the idea of a seared conscience, that means the conscience is trying to speak, but you are ignoring it over and over and over again. And what happens is you begin to dull to that voice and you no longer hear it. And so you see these people like, how can they do that without feeling guilt? Because if I did that, I would feel guilt. Well, they've they've they did feel guilt, but they kept going in that direction until they no longer did of course, that's a very dangerous thing. First Timothy 1.19 shows us that your conscience can be ignored. Your conscience doesn't make the decision for you. It is giving you information to help you make a decision. You're supposed to listen to it. It's like your chief counsel. And when you ignore it, bad things happen. But when you take its input, it can help you make a good decision, but you can't ignore it. And then 1 Peter 2.19 It is tremendously important. So we recognize, according to the Bible, that this conscience has varying qualities to it. It it can be trained. It can be weak. It can be ignored. But it is very important, according to Scripture. So here's another way of looking at the conscience. It's the second opinion of the soul. So self says, but I want to do this. And the second opinion says, but you shouldn't. And that second opinion is almost like coming to your parents and saying, hey, uh, mom, dad, I'm thinking of doing this. What do you think? And they're like, "Uh, honey, we really don't feel comfortable with that. You may not want to hear that, but when you submit to that second opinion or to that authoritative counsel in your life, it goes well for you. And that's what the Proverbs teach us. And this is sort of like that. It's almost like a parental type of oversight of our soul. God built it into us to help us navigate 1 Peter 2.19, the scripture I referenced earlier that showed that it's very important. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. So even though you endure grief and you suffer, if you're doing it for conscience sake, it's actually commendable to do that. So to keep your conscience, even though it may lead to physical suffering, is actually the biblical model for how you live your life. So historically, this nation has regarded the importance of conscience. I just have a few quotes from our nation's history, which are just interesting. This comes from one of my favorite novels. It's called To Kill a Mockingbird by Harper Lee. My second child is named Harper. So that gives you an indication of maybe where I got that from. But there's uh, two of the characters in it, Scout, who's sort of the narrator of the story, and Atticus, who's sort of the hero of the story, her father. And this is their discussion back and forth. Scout says, Atticus, you must be wrong. Atticus says, how's that? Scout says, well, most folks seem to think they're right and you're wrong. He's defending a African-American man in a trial, and they say that Atticus is wrong for doing that. He shouldn't defend as a lawyer. He shouldn't defend an African-American. And so Scout's reasoning, well, most folks seem to think that they're right and you're wrong. And Atticus says they're certainly entitled to think that, and they're entitled to full respect for their opinions said Atticus, but before I can live with other folks, I've got to live with myself. The one thing that doesn't abide by majority rule is a person's conscience. It's a great quote. Here's George Washington on the matter. Labor to keep alive in your breast that little spark of celestial fire called conscience. John Milton says this, give me liberty to know, to utter and to argue freely according to conscience above all liberties. So out of all the liberties, John Milton says, the chief one is to be able to function according to conscience. Martin Luther King Jr. says this, there comes a time when one must take a position that is neither safe nor politic nor popular, but he must take it because conscience tells him it is right. On some positions, cowardice asks the question, is it safe? Expediency asks the question, "Is it politic?" and vanity comes along and asks the question, "Is it popular?" But conscience asks the question, "Is it right?" The ultimate measure of a man is not where he stands in moments of convenience, but where he stands in moments of challenge, moments of great crisis, and controversy. Boy, well, this is that's a great quote right there. And that is exactly what we need to come down to. Our conscience has to be a player in this. If we're going to be brave in this generation, we need to remember that God has gifted us with something. He has given us a conscience. And when our conscience is trained according to the word of God, we need to be bold to stand for that and to not melt and to not cower because it is unpopular to do so. Albert Einstein says this, and I almost want to say supposedly, because it just like my entire impression of Albert Einstein wouldn't have him say this, but it's an interesting statement. Never do anything against conscience, even if the state demands it. So it's like, okay, Albert, if that's what you're saying, that's a very interesting statement. In other words, even if your local government, your state government, your national government says you have to do this, but it goes against your conscience, never do it. Never do it if it goes against your conscience. Acts 24, 16, Paul speaking, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. Is that what you're striving to do? To always have a conscience that is without offense. There's no going off in your conscience. There's no red flags waving around. There's no, uh, Eric, what are you doing? Going off. It's a conscience that is without offense toward God and in my relationship with men. So if I'm rude to someone, My conscience actually says, Eric, uh, that was incorrect. I know it. I may want to ignore what my conscience is saying, but if I listen to it, then I do not have a conscience with offense. I don't have a conscience going, "Uh, Eric, you still never made that right. Eric, uh, remember that person? That that was an incorrect way of handling that. No, what I am striving, like Paul, to do is to have a conscience without offense, without uh, 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 going off toward my God or toward other men. So let's go through a few illustrations. Let's talk about the gun. This has been a very interesting thing throughout the body of Christ and throughout, well, since the history of the gun has been around. But here's the question. Should I pick up that gun if my government asks me to? So when you talk about being drafted to the military, when you talk about uh, picking up a gun and using it, because what would it be used for? To kill another man. This is a tricky one for many Christians. However, there's a variation, almost like a, a, a gradient of how people have related to it. You have Christians that in good conscience cannot pick up that gun. And you have Christians, on the other hand, in good conscience, could not not pick up the gun. And they need to go forth and defend their country. And that is what their conscience dictates. And if they didn't, they would feel wrong. Isn't that interesting? How could—and they're they're both Christians— So let's walk through this because it's important to understand those gradients in conscience because it's important in how you relate to others. One of the things that really goes south is when we begin to impose our conscience on others. It's a tricky thing because we feel burdened about something and we need to follow that. But someone else around us may not feel the same burden that we have. And as a result, we can get mad about that, and we can say, you're wrong, when in actuality, I'm not saying they couldn't be wrong, they could be, but that has to do with the Word of God. And in the Word of God, there is a gradient that we could say. Like, for instance, should you ever bear arms uh, in a battle? That's a tricky one, because there are pacifists that have interpreted Scripture as saying, no, you cannot, and then and of course, you have other people that say, didn't Jesus ask his disciples to grab a sword? Isn't he returning in the end of Revelation with swords protruding from his mouth, coming to wreak judgment on the nations? Doesn't Isn't there a time for war and a time for peace? What if Jesus says it's time for war? Am I not willing to do that? So you can see the tensions because a pacifist, someone who looks at scripture and interprets it as saying, hey, no, turn the other cheek. No, no, we are not here to judge. We are here to show mercy you can understand both sides. There's a gradient in between that God doesn't seem to go out of his way to clarify. And as a result, it leads us to an individual wrestling match before the word of God, but we need to stand where God is moving us to stand, but show grace to those around us to recognize that someone might land slightly different. Now there's other things, like I would say, you know, if you're landing like, hey, I'm free to you know, abort my baby and someone else says, no, well, I'm not, it's against my conscience. I would say there still is a right and a wrong and there still is something known as murder and there still is something that needs to have a clear line in the body of Christ and we need to all appeal to say, hey, the value of life is very, very important here and I think it should be wrong for all of us to uh, To abort our child, okay? And I think those are reasonable comebacks on the things I'm saying. In other words, there's certain things with gl- gradients where it's not clear. There's other things that maybe are a lot more clear for us as the body of Christ, and we should be a lot more sharp with them. So let's look at this gun issue. Option number one, if you conclude that the gun itself is evil, well, what would your conscience say? So no, because it's a conviction, a violation of conscience, you should not pick up that gun. Option number two, that gun is amoral. So if you looked at that gun as not having a moral value, it's just amoral. It's how you use it. So then the conclusion would be, so it depends on its use. You might feel comfortable with a gun shooting at a target range. It's not like immoral uh, to do that. However, to shoot it at a person might be to you. And so the gun itself isn't the problem. You could pick it up. You're fine with that. But if someone says you need to kill that person over there, you'd say, no, I can't. If they said you need to kill this person over here, which is an enemy who is attacking your homeland, attacking your family, attacking people you love, maybe you would feel. But if it was a uh, helpless woman and child over here that, that your commander in chief says, go kill them, they need to be exterminated. You might say, okay, I could kill this person, but I couldn't kill that person. That's an issue of conscience that you need to understand and you need to work through these things. All of us do. Option number three, that, that you could also conclude this, that gun is the tool God invented to purge evil. So absolutely, I'll pick it up. Absolutely, I'll use it. There's a gradient here, and I don't know where, I mean, there, Christians have fallen in different aspects of that gradient. It doesn't mean they're right either. It just means we need to understand that conscience has variables to it. How about money? Should I use money as my means of buying and selling? You know that some Christians throughout history have felt like money is bad in and of itself? It is the evil. Now, of course, some of you would say, no, it's the root of all evil. And so there's a difference between money being evil and money being a root of evil. And so as a result, you could do the same thing. Option number one, if you believe that money is evil in and of itself, you wouldn't be able to touch it. It's a conviction. As a result, it would violate your conscience to use it. So you need to use some other forms of transaction you know, to buy and sell. It's going to be tricky, but... Hey, it's your conscience. You better heed it. Option number two, that that money is amoral. The money itself isn't evil. And so it depends on its use. If you're asking me to use it for this, I'd say no. But if you ask me to use it for this, I'd feel fine with that. Option number three, that money is the tool God invented to promote his kingdom in this earth. So absolutely, I'll use money. And so you have all those gradients along the way. Okay, one that hits a little closer to home in our modern day, and that's the vaccine. Should I get the vaccine if the government mandates it? So these have been tricky things because in certain countries it was uh, mandated and in certain jobs it's been mandated. And so, wow, this has created some unique drama. And let's walk through the same thing. Option number one, if you believe the vaccine is evil, for instance, you believe it's the mark of the beast or you believe that it is contrived by the government to control you. If you believe these things and you believe it would harm your body, you believe that it would debilitate your body or debilitate debilitate your family's body, and the risks of getting it are greater than the risks of getting COVID, it may be a conviction issue and you should not get it. And you need to be ready to face the winds of trial that come with keeping your conscience. And there's that other group that would say the vaccine is amoral. It's not an evil thing in and of itself. And so it depends on its use. For instance, I don't, I may not come to the conclusion personally that the vaccine is evil. Well, you know, I've had a lot of people present me data and evidence, and I feel like so much of it is unknown. I, I don't know. I don't have a tremendous confidence in it, right? But I would look at it as sort of okay, I'm going to look at it as an amoral thing. And yet I don't like mandates that you're going to tell me I have to put that in my body. You're going to tell me I have to stick it in my children's bodies. That bothers me, right? And so my issue might be, well, it depends on its use. If it was the issue of me going over and sharing the gospel with the nation somewhere else in the world where I had to have the vaccine to do it, well, I would seriously prayerfully consider getting the vaccine. If it's just an issue of like, hey, for your protection from COVID, I'd say, no, thank you. I would rather trust my own immune system and I'd rather go through COVID than take an unknown vaccine that has not had years of being proven, right? And that would be, that's a personal processing thing. Now, how about this? Option number three, there are people that actually feel this, church people, Christians. The vaccine is the tool God invented to preserve the human race. So absolutely give me the vaccine. And so in the body of Christ, we've had a lot of division over how people have processed through this. It is important for you to know your own conscience, but also to have a grace toward others' conscience. Informing the conscience. Is the amoral item being used in an immoral way? So something may be amoral, like a gun. You could say, well, that doesn't have a moral value to it. But if it's being used in an immoral way, hey, I'm not going to participate in that. A vaccine could be an amoral thing to you, where it's like, "Hey, that doesn't have a moral value." You know, having something in your body that actually you know hinders a disease from coming in could be a good thing, could be a bad thing. There's a lot of variables to that. But if it's being used in an immoral way, you know, some Christians had a struggle because maybe fetal cell lines were used from a, a previous abortion back, in, I think, in 1972 to help produce this, and so some Christians were like, "I can't participate in this because I feel like it is." Uh, in a sense, indirectly endorsing abortion. That's an issue of conscience and conviction and should be protected. And so as a result, even though we could all weigh in on each other's conscience and say, that's ridiculous. I can't believe you have that position. One of the beautiful things about our country is that it will protect someone's conscionable position and their conscience conclusion, even if they disagree with it. Even if the government itself is like, I don't agree with you, but okay, if that's your conscience, we'll protect it. It's very important in the church that we would have that. But on the personal level, if you're going to function in a world-changing way, you need to know how to listen to that other voice that is speaking and giving you perspective, even if it puts you on the outs and makes you look like an idiot in your generation. So here's my summary. A clean conscience is the kindling of a brave life. When you have a clean conscience, God kindles upon that cleanliness, that sense of right relationship with him. And it creates a foundation of strength for proclaiming truth in your generation. When you have an impure conscience, when you have a soiled conscience, it's incredible, but it totally uh, undermines your confidence. And as a result, this becomes a very, very significant issue in your life moving forward for you being strong for such a time as this. So throughout this uh, entire series, I've been building what I'm calling the 10 facts that make a believer brave. And they're all promises. God promises to, number one, make you inwardly doomproof. Number two, give you a PhD in good news. Number three, enable you to take any hit the enemy can dish out. Number four, make you spiritually unstoppable. Number five, make you above reproach. Number six, God promises to put you on the offensive in this battle. Number seven, make you a master strategist. Number eight, God promises to build you into an athlete of mercy. And then today's, number nine, God promises to maintain a Windex clean conscience. If you desire to walk in a clean conscience, I guarantee you the Holy Spirit is more interested than even you are. And so when you begin to participate with him and you allow him to speak to you through your conscience and to shape your conscience conscience and to train your conscience, according to the word of God, you will be made ready to be strong in this hour. go to ellerslie.com forward slash daily to get all the details thanks for listening